In just a minute, uh, we're going to open the Bible together and read our two readings. You'll hopefully have got this outline on the way and you can see the two readings that are there. So if you've got a Bible with you, great. If you don't and you've got a phone with you, please do get ready to, to look them up. Um, if you're new to St Andrews, uh, our, our pattern uh, when it comes to what we look at in the Bible, and this is not uh, unique to us, it's what many churches around the world do, is we, we look at whole books of the Bible sequentially and we do that to allow God to set the agenda rather than here's Andrew's favourite topic for today. Uh, we, we let God set the agenda and sometimes that's super comfortable, sometimes that's less comfortable and we are about to approach a passage that um, has over the years uh, proven less comfortable uh, for churches. So it's important that we, we know we're doing that because this is what God wants us to hear as we look through this part of his word. Um, we are in a part of 1 Timothy, and we will read it in a minute, that is focused on the activity of the, the church itself, the local church, what it does when it gets together, what, what are its foundational activities. Um, and that's going to continue not just for today's passage, for, for a couple of chapters into this letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes clear his agenda for, for this part of his letter uh, in chapter 3, verse 14. Now, I'm just going to read that uh, so that we have a sense of what we're looking at together this morning. Uh, he says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, he's talking to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, uh, you will know how the people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. In other words, what we're looking at here are key principles for how to go about church together, how to uh, operate uh, in the local church, in the life of that church. And particularly what we have in front of us and what we're about to read together are principles about the role of men and women within the church as given by uh, the apostle. And I think as we look at these principles, we need to keep this in mind. We need to keep in mind that uh, at its foundation, the church is not governed by a human agenda. Not my agenda, not anybody's here. It is, well, remember that word we heard in 3.15 just now. It is God's house. It is his church. Uh, he rules here. And it is built on his word. That's the plumb line as we've been talking about as we looked at 1 Timothy together. And I think that should be a great relief to us, that he's in charge in this place, not us. should actually be a huge relief. Uh, because you remember the very first verse we saw in 1 Timothy? Remember who he is? He is God our saviour. Uh, he is Christ Jesus our hope. Uh, here is one that we can trust as he speaks. And we're called to obey the word that he speaks. And in his house, in these chapters that we're looking at together, uh, he has a clear agenda. What he wants us to be about as we're together and that is salvation for all people remember we saw that with uh, josh last week uh, chapter 2 verse 4 that is what god is doing in the world he having come into the world to save sinners he is now declaring the news that there's one mediator between god and man the man jesus christ that's what this place is about salvation to the ends of the earth because that is what god desires and as we learn one timothy together i want us to do so knowing first Who's speaking? God, our Saviour, our King, and why he's speaking. He's speaking to uh, order our life together that we can be about his purpose in the world. And so my prayer as we look at today, but also the coming weeks as well, is that 1 Timothy will actually lead us to be more intentional as men and women 
in his church to live out his purpose for us. And as we zoom in on 1 Timothy, which we're about to read, uh, it does say that men and women have two foundational activities in the life of the church. If you want to know, boil it down, what are we about, what do we do in this place? Two things, we pray and we learn and teach the gospel. That's what this church is all about. And today we're going to focus on the second of those in verses 11 to 15. And it is a passage, as I said before, that's produced a fair bit of heat over the years, heated discussion in churches. And so I do want to encourage us to tread carefully as we look at it together, uh, because it is actually possible in a discussion like this to generate lots of heat, but not much light, to actually not be any further along after looking at it together. And I don't want that for us. So I want to encourage you to take care of each other. We will uh, be approaching this, some perhaps for the first time, some with uh, clear set views on what it says. And so let's take care of each other, and let's take care to listen humbly to our God. Uh, Our goal is actually very simple. It's to understand the clear principle that we're going to see here and then apply it in the life of our church. And we're actually going to do that over, if you like, a three-step process. This week uh, is all about the heavy lifting of just trying to understand the passage together. Uh, There's no car chase scenes this week. This is just simple... Uh, What does the passage say? We'll get to application, all the but what about questions that we may have. That's next week. (laughs) This week, we're simply going to try and understand what what God is saying here. Week two, uh, we're going to consider the implications of that biblical principle for the life of our church. And I do want to invite you, at the end of uh, today, I'm going to invite questions, not so much to be addressed today, but we will address them next week. So whatever questions you have, whether it's questions of clarification, whether it's questions of I don't agree with that, whatever it is, this is an opportunity for us to think this through together. So I do invite those questions. After those two weeks, there will be a further week on the 21st of March where on that Sunday in the afternoon, we're going to have a forum where, again, I'm hoping that we can dialogue together about this and think about it and dive a bit deeper into the biblical context and dive a bit deeper into our own cultural context that we come to a passage like this from. So I'm going to pray and then uh, we're going to read uh, these passages together. Liz is going to come and read for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and in your love you speak to us that we may know you and know ourselves and know your purpose for us as your house. Humble our hearts, we pray. Help us to listen well uh, with a view to honouring you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So do grab a Bible as Liz comes to uh, read our passages for us. Good morning, everyone. Our first reading is uh, from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, um, starting uh, in chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is good for the man not to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. 
And whatever the man called, called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman for the, from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The second reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2 from verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Thank you, Liz. Uh, please uh, have that open, uh, starting with the, the 1 Timothy passage. We will come back to the Genesis passage as well. 
And uh, here we are, week one of uh, thinking through this. We are approaching this uh, simply from the context of asking what does this passage actually say? What is written to us from God in 1 Timothy? Um, and we need to keep asking, why is Paul writing it? writing it. We, we've seen already in this letter that what he writes is not arbitrary. Uh, he's writing to his friend Timothy, his partner in the gospel, who is there in Ephesus, writing to help him line up the life of the church in Ephesus with the plumb line of God's true word, uh, all for this agenda of salvation that we've seen as we've gone through. And chapters two onwards are answering the question, how should the church live in this world with God's purpose of salvation as its agenda. That's, that's what we're seeing together. And uh, as I said before, that there are two foundational activities that the church has with that agenda in mind. Uh, praying, uh, that's right at the heart of what God wants us to be about. And secondly, learning and teaching the gospel. Uh, and about those two activities, praying and learning and teaching the gospel, God's word has very particular things to say uh, to both men and women commands to both men and women about how to live in his church. Uh, first, uh, prayer. And as we look at it, uh, uh, verses 8 to 10, that's where he's focused on prayer. Oh, I want you to note a couple of things, just as a, a general comment before we look at those verses. Uh, I think we have here in verses 8 to 10, firstly, a word about prayer to men that directly challenges the existence in our culture of what our culture calls toxic masculinity. <laughs> Uh, a word straight to that word, to that uh, uh, being in our culture. And we also have this in verses 9 and 10, a word about prayer to women that again directly challenges the existence in our culture of toxic objectification of women. So two things that are very much prevalent and uh, toxic presence in our current culture are spoken about here. So let's look at each of them in turn. Firstly, a word to men about prayer, verse 8. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, the first thing I want you to note, if you've got that passage open there, is that this is a word to our church too. Do you see the word he uses there in verse 8? I want men everywhere to pray. This isn't a word just for the church in Ephesus. This is the principle of what God's church is about everywhere. And I think already that is key as we seek to understand the principles that we're going to see together uh, as are outlined in this verse and in the verses to come. It's sometimes argued, and we'll talk more about this next week, that the, the principles and the instructions we see in these verses are culturally specific or time specific. They're no longer for us in our culture and they're no longer for us in our time. And we'll deal with the time specific question a little bit later. But first see this here, the principle about men and women, about prayer, or the principle here for men, is for men everywhere, not just men in Ephesus. Now the challenge for us is how do we apply a universal principle in our own particular setting here at St Andrews? A second thing to note about this word to men about prayer is it's not saying that women should not pray in church. In fact, we saw that last week in chapters 2, verses 1 to 7. And in fact, you read any of the Apostle Paul's writing, for instance, 1 Corinthians 11, which deals with very similar issues to this passage. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, he speaks of both men and women praying in church. Uh, what he's addressing here is not so much who should pray, but a particular hindrance to prayer prevalent amongst men, something that stops them praying. 
And what is that? Do you see it there in verse 8? It's anger. Power plays. It is what 2021 culture would call toxic masculinity. And as much as the roles of men and women have changed over time, this toxicity remains in our culture, doesn't it? In the secular world, outside of church, uh, bullying and intimidation and domineering in workplaces is rife. Still, it's not a new problem, but it's not gone away. And in homes as well, the, the, uh, the scourge of domestic violence in our world is not less of an issue than it was before. It's still there. Uh, and sadly, this is not just an issue in the world out there, it is also an issue in churches. Uh, that same bullying and intimidation and domineering that can happen in the world happens here in churches. And sadly, often it is men, and even more sadly, often it is men who are ministers uh, who are responsible for that. God's word to men about prayer is this. In my house, his church, With the agenda of salvation, men, leave your weapons at the door. The only weapon he wants men to wield in his church is the weapon of prayer, dependent prayer. And men are called, you see here in verse 8, to lift holy hands in prayer. It's an Old Testament phrase used again and again in the Old Testament of godly men imploring God, pleading with God, pleading his cause, Uh, Uh, A passage like Nehemiah 8, where God's people hear his word together, the very next thing that happens is that the men plead to God in prayer. Now, it's not so much about the position of you can pray with your arms up or down or sideways. That's not the point. The point is what's in the hands. They're holy hands. They're clean. They're not bloody from power plays that men get into. They're they're empty. They're not carrying other weapons of power. They're they're empty. They're open. They're dependent on God and his provision rather than the strength of their own hand. And they're hands that are changing. They're being changed. They're being made holy by this gospel that can give us, remember in chapter 1, give us pure hearts. The reality is, as a church, we need more men like that and less men who think God's agenda is achieved by the might of their hands. And if we don't approach prayer that way, men, here's God's promise, and it's not a new promise. It shows that this has always been his agenda. God will not listen to our prayer. Now listen to this from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Let us be a church full of men who are being humbled and changed by the gospel so that their hands as they pray are holy hands. Uh, There's a word to men uh, from God about about prayer. Here's a word to women regarding prayer verses 9 and 10. And uh, you see there it says, I likewise, it's the same subject, prayer is the agenda. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And again, I want to say that I think this is a word that directly challenges the culture we have in uh, Western cultures like Sydney of objectification and even sexualisation of women. Despite how much, again, the roles of men and women have changed over time, we must see that this toxic element in our culture remains strong, tragically strong. 
especially for younger women, the pressure to uh, conform to sexualized fashions that uh, says this is who you are to be. And the prevalence and increasing, it seems, prevalence of sexual abuse in our culture. Uh, tragically writ large in the media this week in the world of politics. But it's fascinating to see after it's been writ large there, now all sorts of other stories are coming out. This is not a small problem in our culture. Uh, objectification and sexualization of women from a generation of men whose only concept of women is what they have learnt from pornography, which is a disease in our culture. That's what women have to put up with. God's word to women in his house, don't buy into the relentless pressure. But, and this is crucial, here's why God calls you not to conform to that. It, it's not because, and this is often what is said even in Christian circles, but in the, in the secular world as well, it's not because conforming to that pressure and, and uh, wearing things that are sexualized in that way will make it hard for men to be godly. That's a weak reason and it's a worldly reason and it's not the reason given here. We're told here, don't buy into it because it's not how you serve God and his purpose in this world. Don't dress to make the focus on you, says God. Dress in this way. Do you see it there in verse 10? Dress with deeds that come from a life being changed by God's glorious gospel. Dress in a way that shows the difference he is making in your life. Now you have there in verse 9 very particular temptations that were prevalent in Ephesus, braided hair, gold, pearls. But beyond the specifics of that, God's principal call to women remains for us in his house. And with his mission of salvation, here, here is his call, deeds trump decoration. And as we've seen in this letter, such adornments, the adornments of godliness that we see here in verse 10, come from learning to be shaped by God's word. And that's where we turn to now, that second foundational activity of the life of the church, learning and teaching the gospel. And as I said, this week out we have a very simple goal, and that is to actually read and try to understand together these verses and see the clear principle that's there, and then next week we'll seek to apply it with all our but what about questions. And it's hard, isn't it, to do that? It's hard not to do it the other way around. It's hard not to rush to application and to, to think about it in our own context. It's, it's hard not to feel uneasy about how discordant the verses, verses 11 onwards, are to our culture. But let's start with first principles. What does God actually say? And why does he say it? Well, let's listen knowing that this is the word of God, our saviour and our king, and we can trust him. Now, here's his word. Have a look at verse 11. The first thing he says is this, in his house, a woman should learn. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, do you notice there his command is not directed generally to women, it's to each woman. If you're a woman in his church, here's his call to you, be a learner in this place. Now that in itself is radical in its culture, but we'll come to that next week. But see simply here the principle set uh, forth at the start of verse 11 there. Your role in his church is to take seriously your role as a disciple, to not be passive, to invest head and heart and mind in learning his gospel. That's who you are in this place. And, and this is crucial, that's who you are alongside men in this place as well. 
Learning the gospel uh, as it is taught by, well, we'll see this in chapter 3, those who are appointed as overseers, those who are appointed to teach the gospel with authority in his house, his church. Now, as we start to think about that idea of what teaching with authority looks like in verse 12, uh, let me raise what I think is a really crucial sidebar as we think about that role in the church. Uh, teach with authority in verse 12. It's, in the NIV, it's sort of described there as if they're two very different activities. There's teaching and then there's having authority. But actually, they're two words that explain each other. It is teaching, that is, with authority. It's a specific sort of teaching that the Apostle Paul has in mind. Teaching with authority is to teach and preach the gospel with the purpose of actually calling upon repentance, change of mind, change of heart, change of life, calling upon faith in God's household. It's, it's authoritative teaching that comes from God's gospel to say repent and believe. And so being taught with authority in the church involves a very different sort of learning to normal learning. It's not just learning to gain knowledge, as good as that is. It's not just learning to have more information. It's learning with a view to repenting and believing. I wonder when you come to church whether that's your goal as you hear his word. My goal is to be a learner in that sense, to repent and believe. That's what authoritative teaching is about. And I want to say, as the senior minister of this church, that's how I exercise my authority here. If you were to ask me, what, what does being in charge of St Andrews involve? What, what's that about? What, 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 how would you describe that? Well, here's what I won't do. I won't point to my title, one, because it's not that impressive, but two, I won't point to that because that's not my authority. I won't point to the AGM we have coming up in a few weeks that I'll be the chairman of the AGM meeting. That's what authority looks like. No. I'll point to this moment right now. This is how I exercise authority. This is how I teach with authority. And it's not my authority. It's God's authority. I teach the word of the king to his people. And when I teach it, I'm teaching with authority, as chapter 3 will see, as I'm appointed to do as an overseer. Now, this is crucial for us to understand as we grapple with verse 12 in a minute. There is actually no authority here outside the proclamation of his word. And that word calling upon repentance and faith. That's what teaching with authority looks like. It looks like what we're doing right now. And, and this is also crucial, it is what anyone standing at this pulpit preaching in this church is doing. Teaching with authority. The authority doesn't stay with me. If, if Josh is preaching or someone else is preaching and I'm in the fifth row, I'm not wearing the authority hat at that point. In fact, very deliberately, and this is more easily seen at 8am, 8am there's a sort of a leader desk here and I sit here and lead the service and say, if Josh was preaching, when it comes time for the sermon, I will physically get off the chair and I will sit down in the pews. And the reason is, at that moment, my role is to be a learner, to learn the gospel with repentance and faith. And here in God's house, verse 11, he wants a woman to learn and you see, he identifies two aspects of that learning, about how to go about the learning. Firstly, the atmosphere that the learning is meant to take place in. Do you see it? In quietness. Now, don't misunderstand that word. It's there again at the end of verse 12, and sometimes some translations translate one bit quiet, one bit silent, but it's actually the same word, quiet. And even more than that, if you go back to verse 2, same word again, quietness. Remember when we were praying last week about praying for all people and to the authorities that we may live peaceful and 
quiet lives. The goal behind that word, the idea behind that word is, is being undistracted, undisturbed by other things. That's what God wants for us in the world. We live peaceful and quiet lives. And that's what he wants for us as we learn in the church, to be deliberate, to be attentive, undistracted, undisturbed. There is a quietness, isn't there, in life that um, comes when something important is happening. I wonder if you've noticed that even in the last couple of weeks with the Australian Open, there's that moment before any point. I was watching the, the, the Osaka, um, who was she playing? Brady, uh, last night. And there's a moment, anytime either of them are serving, quiet, please, Osaka to serve. And that's the cue to the crowd and even to both players. Now's not the time for other things. We're focused on what's happening right now. This is important, this moment. It needs all the focus the players have. Essentially, what God is saying to us as his gospel is heard in his church, quiet, please. This is big. It is a disposition to be uh, uh, Mary rather than Martha. You remember the story in in Luke 10 of uh, Mary and Martha, and there's uh, Martha charging around, making sure everything is all right in the house, and uh, then she looks at Mary just sitting at Jesus' feet and says, what about her? And and Jesus says, says, no, she's doing the best thing. I wonder if you approach learning like that it's the best thing I can do to be quiet and listen as God speaks to me there's the first thing that's the atmosphere here's the second thing the disposition of the learning Uh, we're told it's to be in full submission a life inclined to humbly listening and obeying the word of God our saviour and really crucially again it's not a call for every woman in church to submit to every man in church that's not on view here at all but to the word being taught with authority by the person appointed to teach that. Now, submission as a word in our culture in 21st century is super negative, isn't it? Uh, Not so for the Bible. Submission is all through it. It's part of the order that God has given us. All Christians are to submit to God. All Christians are to submit to one another in love. All Christians are to submit to the authorities. All uh, Christians are to submit... Uh, to one another in the church and in the home a wife we're told we saw this in Ephesians 5 last year a wife is to to submit to her husband's godly leadership and so 2 verse 11 is a word that affirms that God is very deliberate in his ordering of things his creation including us including our homes including his home his house the church a woman is to learn with a heart that submits it is her purposeful and her personal response to God and his word to her. And in the end, it is important to know that that is a submission to God, ultimately. A submission is to God and the word his appointed servant is speaking in his house. Now, right now, at this very moment, that's me. At another moment, someone else uh, will open his word and teach it with authority and call upon repentance and faith, and in that moment, I will join you as a learner. But in God's house, here's the principle, and we move to verse 12 now. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Remember, we're viewing those two words together, teach with authority. Here's his instruction. A woman should not teach with authority over a man. Remember our goal? What is God saying? Uh, Here it is, verse 12. It's not easy but it is clear. The person who teaches with authority and the fellowship of men and women, a gathering like we're in right now, is is not permitted to be a woman. 
It's not a principle covering uh, leadership of women in the world of government or in the world of corporations or in the world of school or whatever it may be. It's very specifically a word about teaching God's word in his house. And so one big question, I think, that, that, that comes from this principle that, that hangs in the air is why? Why this principle? Why this prohibition? Is it about competency? And that's sometimes uh, levelled at this as, as why it's a nonsense, this instruction. Because to be honest, if you were to do the data on competent men and competent women in the church, I doubt it would come out favourably for the men. Is it about competency? Demonstrably no. Is it just about Ephesus? Is this a particular problem of what was going on in Ephesus? You remember chapter 1, there was the issue of false teaching and that was to be uh, not heard in the churches. Is it that there was a group of women who were teaching falsely and they were to be silenced? Well, we'll deal with that more next week, but let me simply say this at this stage. All the examples of false teachers that Paul gives are men. This is 3.15, a principle about how to live in God's house everywhere. Still, we have our question, why? Why this principle? Well, verses 13 and 14 give us the answer. And they make clear, I think, that this is not a, an occasional instruction, nor is it a, a, a local instruction. It is. Why the principle? Well, do you see there, verse 13 and 14? Because of the order of God's creation. And verse 14, because of the disorder of humanity's fall. Uh, let's briefly, as we come towards a close, look at each of those in turn. Firstly, the order of creation. You see the word at the start of verse 13, it's four. He's explaining the instruction that he's just given in verse 12. Here's my reason, says the apostle. Uh, it is because from creation, God has ordered it this way. Verse 13 actually has Genesis 2 in view that we, we had read out for us uh, before by Liz. And basically, in 1 Timothy 2.13 and in Genesis 2.7, we have the reality of God's created order that Adam was formed first. And Eve after as his partner, his helper. We get that in Genesis 2.18 and again Genesis 2.23. Now the Genesis account and indeed the entire Bible, especially the New Testament, makes it crystal clear that men and women are equal. Uh, in the Genesis account, both are made in his image with equal dignity, equal status. Uh, uh, another verse from uh, Galatians 3.28, which is sometimes used as we discuss this, uh, uh, all are one in Christ because of what Christ has done. There's no uh, slave or free, male or female. We're all one. We're all the same in terms of what we have received from him. Both, as we saw in chapter 1, recipients of grace and mercy and peace. Both children of a heavenly father, equal. But what is being taught here in 1 Timothy 2 is that equal does not have to mean there's no difference in role. God is very deliberate in his diversity. It reflects actually the diversity of the Godhead, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, uh, equally God, equally worthy of our worship and yet completely distinct in their roles. And verse 13, the chronology of creation, the Apostle Paul says, reflects that order. And while still being fundamentally equal, God gave the role of leader in his place to the man. That's the point of verse 13. God gave the woman the role of complementary helper to partner together to achieve God's purpose in his creation. Uh, you see, the way God has created us is that the man and woman are not presented in those creation accounts as independent people just going about their individual thing, uh, nor uh, those who just work separately or even in competition. 
but nor are they identical people whose role is in every way the same. Adam was formed first, then Eve, says Paul. The order and the implication of the order is actually fleshed out as we go through the Bible and we see that ordered relationship express itself in a number of facets. In family life, again and again in the Bible, it says husbands are to lead in the home as servants and uh, wives are to trust that servant leadership. That's the order he sets in that our houses and then he says, well, in my house, the principle is 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. And so the answer as to why the limitation of verse 12, it's not occasional, it's not local, it's ongoing and it's deeply theological. And so the role of leadership in the family and in the church family is given to the man. And if you read the Genesis accounts as Liz was reading them, you see there he's given leadership, he leads, and here's the crucial thing as we move to verse 14, he is held accountable for the fall. You see what verse 14 says? And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, don't misread this. It's not suggesting that the reason, verse 12, that women are not to teach with authority in the church is that they're more prone to be deceived. Uh, it actually shows us the tragic tragedy of the reversal of God's good order that happens in the fall. In saying that Eve was deceived here, Paul is not making a value judgment. He's simply quoting Eve. She said it, the serpent deceived me. But, and this is key, Adam was not deceived. Why? Well, no, not because he's too smart for that. Worse. It is because in Genesis 2, the Lord spoke his word to him. He commanded him, you are not to eat from that tree. He was given that authoritative word to speak into his creation. That was the word given to the man. And here in Genesis 3, if you look at the detail carefully, he is standing right next to Eve, right there with her. And she's having this dialogue with the serpent. And what is he doing? He is saying nothing. Instead of owning his job as leader at that moment and serving Eve, including speaking this authoritative word over the top of what the serpent is saying, he says nothing. A serpent subverts God's good order and the man and the woman go along with it. But Genesis 3 verse 9 to 12, Adam is the one held responsible for this tragedy. Paul is making actually the same point he makes in verse 13, but now in reverse, in the negative. He is saying to his church, now that you are those who have received grace and mercy and peace, been changed by that, now that you have come back into God's house and under the leadership of Christ Jesus, now honour the order that God has put into this world for his good purpose. The church should embrace the good order of Genesis 2 rather than continue to rebel in the disorder of Genesis 3, is what he is saying. And so this is why God says in his household, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now there it is. We've just started to look at it. We will come back to this next week, but I need to stop. Uh, as I say, next week, what I want to do is to summarise where we've got to so far wrestle with verse 15 that we haven't got to and then consider the implications of this biblical principle for us. But what I want to invite you to do this week, and I really want to encourage you to do this, if you have questions or perhaps even just a statement that you want to say, no, I disagree and here's why, I'd love to hear this. I'd love to hear that. I want this to be a dialogue. Uh, so please just send me an email and if you don't know my email, you'll see on the outline there the connect at St Andrews. Send it there. 
We're going to spend a good chunk of time next week dealing with those questions, thinking it through together, so please do ask. As we go about this, our goal is not to find a law to police at St Andrews, nor is it to sort of strain a gnat for every possible definition of teaching with authority so that we can get everything right and perhaps we can have a manual with what's allowed and what's not. That's not the goal. The point at issue will remain for us, given that this is God's house, under the authority of Christ Jesus, the question will be for us, are we honouring the good relationship that God has ordered between men and women in his place? Are we honouring that as we think about each thing we do? That's our goal. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to encourage you just to reflect on what we've heard as uh, the band uh, lead us in our final song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to speak to us and you speak a word that uh, speaks right into the life of our church and we pray, Father, for humble hearts, for generous, gentle hearts with each other that we may hear it and think about it together and seek to honour you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.